Welcome to Music History Monday for October 23rd, 2023. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Al Jolson and the Painful Legacy of Blackface. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the death on October 23, 1950, 73 years ago today, of the Lithuanian-American singer and actor Al Jolson. Born Asa Jolson on May 26, 1886, in the village of Srednik, in what was then the Russian Empire and what is today Lithuania, he died of a massive heart attack in his suite at the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco at the age of 64. He was playing cards with friends when he collapsed. His last words were, quote, Oh, oh, I'm going, unquote. Singing ran deep in the Jolson clan. Jolson's father, Moses Jolson, was a cantor. The family immigrated to the United States in 1894 when young Asa was eight years old. Jolson grew up in southwest Washington, D.C., where he began his career singing on street corners. From there, it was on to burlesque shows and performing on the vaudeville circuit. In those days, entertainment, local retail, and professional sports were among the few American industries open to immigrant Jews. If this sounds painfully familiar to black Americans, well, so it should. Equally painful is that by 1905, the 19-year-old Jolson began appearing in blackface, a holdover from the minstrel shows of the 19th century. Jolson wasn't the only performer working in blackface at the time, but he became the best known of his generation, the so-called king of blackface. The subject of tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post is Al Jolson's groundbreaking movie, The Jazz Singer. Given that The Jazz Singer concludes with two musical numbers featuring Jolson in blackface, I feel that it's important to broach this topic, blackface, here and now. That's because the issue of blackface cuts to the heart of racism in America and to the soul of the American popular music industry, going back nearly 200 years. Blackface. My views on this subject have, well, evolved a lot. There was a time when I was a young man, and we're talking decades ago, when I didn't think much about blackface one way or the other. Having grown up in the American Northeast, I was surrounded by all sorts of racial and ethnic stereotypes, and to be concerned about them seemed the height of oversensitivity and humorlessness. So, growing up where and when I did in the late 1950s and 1960s, I experienced a degree of casually insidious racism 
that conditioned me, and I dare say most of my generation, to accept a degree of bigotry that would be considered far out of bounds today. For example, the cast-iron black-faced lawn jockeys that dotted the front yards of my South Jersey suburban neighborhood. Another example, the book Little Black Sambo, which was on every toddler's bookshelf, as were the books by Dr. Seuss, that would be Theodore Seuss Geisel, 1904 to 1991, many of which featured cartoon images of black and Asian people that make us cringe today. High-end comedians regularly appeared on network TV variety shows like Ed Sullivan, doing routines that today would be considered irredeemably offensive. For example, Buddy Hackett's Chinese waiter bit and Bill Dana's My Name is Jose Jimenez. Some old fogies among us today might assert that the 1950s and 60s were better times, claiming that during those good old days, we knew how to laugh at ourselves. But in fact, we, meaning here straight white people, weren't laughing at themselves. No, they were laughing at other white people who were making fun of Asian people, Hispanic people, gay people, and in the case of those wearing blackface, black people. When I was growing up, blackface imagery was still everywhere to be seen, in the movies, on television, in books and magazines, and at Halloween parties. I took the presence of blackface for granted and was utterly unaware of its origins and how profoundly upsetting it had always been to black Americans. Writing in 1848, 1848, about blackface performers in the increasingly popular minstrel shows of the time. Frederick Douglass, 1818 to 1895, characterized blackface performers as, quote, the filthy scum of white society who have stolen from us a complexion denied to them by nature in which to make money and pander to the corrupt taste of their white fellow citizens." Unquote. In dealing with this issue of blackface, I will apologize up front if I get preachy or sound self-righteous. In fact, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, and I want to share my thought process with you. Archetype, stereotype, and caricature. I would begin by drawing what I believe to be some necessary distinctions between archetype, stereotype, and caricature. In order to do so, permit me to refer to my Music History Monday post for February 17, 2020, which was entitled, The Case Against Madame Butterfly. Please, bear with me. February 17, 2020, marked the 116th anniversary of the premiere of Giacomo Puccini's opera, Madame Butterfly. I used the opportunity of that anniversary to rebut a recent article in the New York Times, an article 
that had accused the opera of racism and cultural appropriation in its dramatic and musical portrayal of the young Gisha Chocho-san, who is Madame Butterfly. In doing so, I accused the author of the article of making a choice, of choosing to be offended by an archetype, the archetype being that of a 15-year-old and later, at the end of the opera, an 18-year-old Japanese geisha. Here's the gist of what I wrote in that blog. Statement. The expressive power of opera is rooted in its ability as a genre to create simpatico with its audience through its presentation of myth and character archetypes. Question. How might we distinguish between character archetypes and racial stereotypes? Definitions. An archetype is defined as, quote, a very typical example of a certain person or thing. Types that fit fundamental human motifs, unquote. A stereotype, on the other hand, is understood as being, quote, a widely held but fixed and oversimplified image or idea of a particular type of person or thing, unquote. In that post back in 2020, I asked another question. Had the poets Luigi Ilica and Giuseppe Giacosa, who wrote the libretto of Madame Butterfly, based on a short story by John Luther Long, ever met a 15-year-old Japanese geisha? No, of course not. But in creating their libretto, they weren't after racial and ethnic realism. Rather, they needed to evoke a stereotype in order to create an archetype. And there it is. Chocho-san is both a stereotype and an archetype. She is a stereotypical Asian female adolescent as perceived by Westerners at the time, a small, docile sex object who is desperate to please. By invoking that stereotype, she becomes a character archetype, a naive and trusting innocent living in an elegant, refined environment that nevertheless exists within a cruel and unforgiving world, someone with whom we all sympathize and identify with. The point, the stereotype of Chocho-san, irksome though it may be for those today who are prepared to be offended, is only a means to a dramatic end as embodied by the archetype she represents. To those arbiters of moral rectitude who would claim that an opera like Madame Butterfly serves primarily to perpetuate racist tropes, I would say you are absolutely wrong. At its core, the opera is about innocence lost, betrayal, and soul-searing grief, a degree of lost betrayal and grief with which we can all identify loss, betrayal, and grief that has parallels in our own lives. To our contemporaries who are offended by the depiction of Chocho-san and Madame Butterfly, okay, I feel your pain, but believe it to be misplaced. Because whatever our sex or our race, 
Every single one of us falls in love with the vulnerable Chocho-san. In the end, her pain is ours. She becomes us, and we become her. Caricature. We would now observe that Chocho-san is never depicted as a caricature. Again, let's define the word. When used as a noun, a caricature is, quote, a picture, description, or imitation of a person in which certain striking characteristics are exaggerated in order to create a comic or grotesque effect, unquote. When used as a verb, to be caricatured is to be parodied, satirized, lampooned, made fun of, mocked, and ridiculed. In the blog version of this post, I put those final three synonyms in italics because caricature is often used to actually dehumanize its subject by making fun of them, mocking them, and ridiculing them. Caricature and dehumanization. Those who would systematically terrorize, subjugate, and enslave their fellow human beings generally require a rationale for doing so, that their victims are somehow less than human. A person dehumanized is a person who can be labeled as an outsider, as a barbarian, as an animal, even as a bacillus. The easiest path to dehumanization is caricature. We've all seen such images, the images of Jews created by the Nazis, the images of Japanese created by World War II American propagandists like our otherwise beloved Dr. Seuss. How about the spectacularly insulting Native American logo used by the Cleveland Indians baseball team until 2018, Chief Wahoo? I would suggest that to actively enslave an entire people, the enslaved must be perceived as being less than human. Back for a moment to Madam Butterfly. One might rhetorically ask, what's the difference really between Al Jolson performing in blackface and Montserrat Caballé, her magnificent bulk packed into a kimono performing as Chocho-san in yellow face? I would suggest that the difference is fundamental. Ridiculous, though she might have looked as Chocho-san, Kabaye played a sympathetic and ultimately tragic human being, imbuing her character with the deepest humanity. But blackface isn't about imbuing a character with humanity, but rather it is about taking away a character's humanity. It is about exaggeration, mocking, and dehumanization. It is about caricature. But how about... Okay, let's toss one final thing into this mix. The false equivalent. Okay, says the how abouter. Blackface is awful. But how about the Japanese internment camps set up in the American West during World War II? 
How about the graceless portrayals of Irish, Italian, Jewish, Polish, Chinese, Mexican, etc. immigrants to this country in the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries? How about, how about, how about? But these how abouts are utterly false equivalents in this case because the black American experience stands far apart from that of any other non-indigenous American group. To say this in no way diminishes the trials and tribulations faced by Irish, Italian, Polish, Jewish, Chinese, Japanese, Mexican, Salvadoran, Arabic, Vietnamese, etc. immigrants to this country. But each of these groups and so many others came to America by choice and have not had their upwards mobility blocked by centuries of systemic endemic racism. The ancestors of the vast majority of today's black Americans did not emigrate by choice. Rather, they were dehumanized and turned into chattel from the moment of their capture and arrival to North America in a process that for many continues to this day. Minstrelsy The Blackface Minstrel Show was the first uniquely American genre of theater. These entertainments emerged in the 1830s as variety shows featuring musical and comedic acts performed primarily by whites in blackface with the intention of portraying black people as, quote, dim-witted, lazy, buffoonish, cowardly, superstitious, and happy-go-lucky, unquote. These shows emerged initially in the northeastern American states and not in the southern slave states. By the late 1840s, they had become a national phenomenon, and they remained incredibly popular through the 19th century, the presumably liberating racial agendas of the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation notwithstanding. It has been argued quite convincingly, yes, see Matthew Morrison's Race, Black Sound, and the remaking of musicological discourse, in the Journal of the American Musicological Society, December 1, 2019. It has been argued quite convincingly that to this day, the American popular music industry, quote, is inextricably rooted in the racist routines of 19th century blackface culture, unquote. According to Matthew Morrison, the white blackface performers demonstrated a, quote, profound white investment in black culture, unquote, even as they mercilessly ridiculed that culture in order to promote the white identity of their audiences. In the end, performing in blackface was another mode of dehumanization, and as a result, with all of this historical baggage, there's no way that Al Jolson's blackface performances, benign though they may seem to some of us today, can be perceived as anything but appallingly racist. A key question, or so I think, did his blackface performances make Al Jolson himself a racist? Many would say yes, 
particularly by today's standards. But knowing what I do about the man, I would say no. We had observed that Jolson helped mightily to introduce black American music, which he adored and tirelessly promoted to white American audiences. And he did, in fact, fight the good fight against discrimination of black Americans on Broadway. But like the vast majority of American whites of his time, he was dreadfully ignorant of and insensitive towards the black American experience. This is not meant to excuse his appearing in blackface, but rather to contextualize it. To quote Alex Ross, writing about blackface minstrelsy and racism in The New Yorker on September 21, 2020, quote, There is no need to reach a final verdict to judge each artist innocent or guilty. Living with history means living with history's complexities, contradictions, and failings." Unquote. These are wise words from a wise person. So let us comprehend a blackface in its historical context with the understanding that we cannot use that context as an excuse for the racism it represents. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.